39. At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift, because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armoury and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Welcome back, and uh, this is the dog watch, isn't it? You know, the night session, and so you're a really good group. But uh, there might be just a couple of comments or a couple of questions from... Our last session, I know it's ancient history, kind of uh, a lot's happened, you know. Any just, there might be a, a thought or two out there, anything people want to share? Right, well let's get stuck into this then. Yes, excellent, good. We're looking at Isaiah 39. <clears throat> now, now have you ever misjudged someone's motives and actions? I'm sure we've all been guilty of that. Yep. And, uh, you know, to know all is to forgive all and so forth. It's very easy, isn't it, for us to misread entirely what someone is doing or what their motives might be. And uh, I suggest that Hezekiah, because of this chapter, <coughs> because of what happens here, maybe because of the, his final words in this chapter, and we're going to have to look, look at them fairly closely, He's often been, I suggest, severely misjudged, criticised. People have found fault with Hezekiah. In fact, the, the usual way in which this chapter is, is treated in sermons and so forth, you know, uh, Hezekiah is often used as an example of what not to do, displaying the wrong attitude and so forth. But I, I want to suggest tonight, maybe argue the point, that... Uh, uh, Hezekiah indeed is uh, godly in this uh, chapter, a as obviously he is in the previous chapters. Chapters 36 and 37, uh, a great national crisis, the great army of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, uh, threatening Jerusalem, and obviously enough Hezekiah there, splendid example of trust in God and so forth. Then we have chapter 38, the personal crisis of uh, Hezekiah, his uh, life-threatening illness, 
And again, he comes out pretty good. But, but this chapter is often viewed as different. Uh, Hezekiah here, a disappointment. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Now, that's, that's very often the approach, or almost always the approach uh, taken to this chapter. And I want to suggest that's not the way to take it. <clears throat> so let's look at our, our, our passage here. Uh, Hezekiah has visitors, doesn't he? Uh, envoys from Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon. So the king of Babylon, who uh, heard about his illness and, uh, and his recovery from that life-threatening illness. So that's what chapter 38 is about. A and so uh, congratulatory letters and a present uh, for Hezekiah. Uh, as it says here, for, for he, the king of Babylon, for he heard that he had been sick uh, and had recover. So here we have this lovely courtesy call from uh, the king of Babylon congratulating Hezekiah and, and so forth. Now, now people often want to read something sinister into this and indeed there might be something sinister from the Babylonian side. Uh, after all, um, Isaiah has been up to his old game of mispronouncing people's names and Merodach is not exactly how that name should be spelled and pronounced because it actually ha uh, smuggles in the idea of, you know, cursed be in the way it's expressed in the Hebrew. So again, uh, Hezekiah is playing this game of mispronouncing, purposely mispronouncing everybody's name. So or, or it's obvious enough that uh, Isaiah writing this up is not at all impressed by Merodach Baladan, uh, the Babylonian king. And, uh, he, and uh, the very fact that he comes from Babylon, that, that sends warning signals. Uh, Babylon, who uh, earlier in uh, this book of Isaiah, chapter 13, it's going to be a problem nation for the people of Israel. It's, this is the nation that's going to indeed threaten the people of Israel. And as we know, uh, they're going to be carried off into exile in Babylon. So certainly uh, we're suspicious of Merodach Baladan and his presence. Uh, and the chapter does begin, isn't it, by uh, uh, the Babylonian king giving a present and by the end of the chapter, the prospect that he's, he's going to take more than he gave, he's going to take everything. Everything that belongs to Hezekiah and his royal family off to Babylon and so forth. So it, this is a chapter which begins with a gift but ends with a whole lot of taking and yet Hezekiah himself, has he done anything wrong? <clears throat> so it's got this lovely courtesy call, lovely letter, gift, envoys. Um, and uh, Hezekiah was happy to welcome them. In verse 2, welcome them gladly. That smile soon going to be taken, you know, going to be wiped off his face later in this chapter when uh, Isaiah comes along. But he's pleased to see them and he shows them around, doesn't he? Shows him his treasure house, the silver and the gold, the spices, the uh, precious oil. It could be the armory or it could be the winery. It's just uh, the house of vessels. And that word vessels in Hebrew can mean lots of things. It can mean armaments, weapons, but it can also mean wine barrels and so forth. So maybe he you know, took, him, took him down to see the wine cellar. Uh, in fact, he showed them everything. End of verse 2, there was nothing in his house. And all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Well, again, there's nothing wrong with that, surely. 
Isn't that what King Solomon did when uh, the Queen of Sheba visited? Uh, 1 Kings chapter 10. When the Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his officials, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings and so forth, there was no spirit left in her. Like this is what you do when... Uh, visitors arrive you, you you show them around and so forth so i go oh, don't so again that that act of hezekiah showing the babylonians all these things i i don't think there's anything as such that is wrong with it though it is going to have tremendous consequences but i don't i don't think we need to read verse two as such that hezekiah is doing something wrong. Now, now, what's often done with these verses is what's really happening, of course the text doesn't say this, but what's really happening is that negotiations are probably going on. You know, a possible you know, treaty is going to take place between Judah and Babylon and so forth. In other words, people often read in a whole lot of political, kind of diplomatic implications in these couple of verses, which I would have suggest are just not there despite all the commentaries, <laughs> despite what's usually said, I don't think there's anything in these first couple of verses that we can really find fault with in terms of Hezekiah. Whatever the motives of the Babylonians, Hezekiah himself uh, is innocent of that. Uh, now, Isaiah often preaches and speaks against foreign alliances. He's, uh, he's done that. Uh, back in chapter 30, wo uh, beginning of chapter 30, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who carry out a plan and not mine, who make a league uh, and, not, and, and not of my spirit and so forth. Those who go down to Egypt asking for counsel and so forth. So Hezekiah is certainly able to preach against alliances with foreign powers. He certainly knows how to proclaim that message, but I don't see anything really in these couple of verses to uh, convict Hezekiah of doing that. Now it's a courtesy call. You've been in hospital. It's always lovely to have visitors, <laughs> especially if they bring flowers and a present and so forth. So now I'm suggesting all that is quite innocent, though it will have, as we'll see, tremendous consequences for Hezekiah and particularly for his royal house and that's one of the themes that's one of the themes that runs through this passage the theme of houses now it always doesn't always come out in our english versions the niv bible often uses the word palace where it's really house and so forth but when we read and reread this we'll see yes there's something of a, of a theme here hezekiah's house verse 2 the treasure house and the storehouses. And in fact, there was nothing in his house that he didn't show them. Uh, so certainly house in terms of building, but also house in terms of family. Of course, the passage is going to go on to talk about his, his sons, his descendants, and uh, how everything in his house, both possessions and family, are going to be taken off to Babylon and so forth. So there's a bit of a theme here of house by the way how do you do bible study there's lots of different bible study techniques isn't it how, how do you study the bible 
do you want to know the best way? And it's cheap. You don't have to buy expensive commentaries. No, the best way to study the Bible is just to read and reread a Bible passage like this over and over again lots of times. That's the best way to study the Bible. Because it's amazing what you begin to see the 50th or the 60th time you read a passage. Now, we probably don't do that enough. You know, of course, we should be reading, re reading through the Bible, you know, but also reading and rereading the same passage many times is the key to begin to really see what was always there, but it somehow doesn't kind of penetrate, it doesn't kind of get in until you read and reread a Bible passage. So that's what I would suggest you do. Uh, read and reread. It's a simple method. It's got a fancy name these days. We call it close reading. It's got a fancy academic name, close reading. Because, you know, academics, they can't just do stuff. They've got to give it a fancy title. Close reading. But all it is is reading and rereading a Bible passage many times. And you really begin to s start making connections and to see things and, and so forth. Well, doing that, if you do that with Isaiah 39, one of the themes that runs through is this theme of house. Hezekiah's house, particularly here. House in terms of possessions, you know, but also house in terms of family, dynasty, and the tremendous consequences for his house that this visit had. These Babylonians who came with their gifts, but by the end of the chapter we find out, Isaiah predicts, that they're going to take everything off to Babylon. You just can't trust Babylonians. That's right. Well, now what's, what happens here? Well, uh, in verse 3, uh, Isaiah turns up, doesn't he? Uh, yes, when prophets come calling, don't answer the door. If you didn't invite them, if it was their idea, often it's bad. <laughs> um, yep. So uh, last time Hezekiah came calling, unannounced, uninvited, his idea, or God's idea, last time Hezekiah came calling, uh, the beginning of chapter 38. Uh, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and shall not recover. In other words, have you made out your will? <laughs> that was the last time a prophet came calling. So, so the very fact that Isaiah comes uh, in verse 3 is ominous. And notice what he's called. Mightn't seem very significant to start with, but and you mightn't have noticed it until you'd read it 30 times. It's Isaiah, the prophet. Now, now, now why does the Bible, Bible bother saying that? Because who doesn't know he's a prophet? He's been a prophet for the last 38 chapters. Why do we have to be told in chapter 39? Why doesn't it just say Isaiah came? No, it's Isaiah the prophet, because he's coming, this, this is an official visit. A bit like when Scott, the minister, turns up, you know? It looks like that, he's just coming to have a friendly chat. He's all decked out, this is an official visit. Oops! <laughs> this is on official business, something quite different. You know what I mean? So Isaiah, the prophet, 
And uh, he's coming, and he's, he's uh, not just coming to speak to Hezekiah. Notice what actually says. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah. This is official business. Prophet and king. Most of the time in the Old Testament, the prophets and kings couldn't get on. There's a history of bad relations between prophets and kings because, you know, kings, they thought they were running the kingdom, but the prophets thought they were running the kingdom. You know what I mean? Kind of, you can't have two bosses, can you? The unhappy, tense relationship between prophets and kings. So, so all that then becomes part of the atmosphere of, of verse 3. The very fact we're told that Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah, warning bells are supposed to be ringing in our mind if we've been reading our Bibles. And when Hezekiah does come, he, he's got questions, hasn't he? What did these men say? And whence did they come from? And so forth. No, notice that he doesn't even give Hezekiah a chance to answer the first question before he's asked the second. It's a battery of questions. It, it kind of gives the idea of interrogation. You see? And these are pointed questions. These are not fact-finding questions. Obviously enough, Isaiah knows the answer even before he asks the question. You see, they're those kind of questions. They're too spot on. You know, putting your finger right on the point. They're those kind of questions. Uh, what did these men say? Uh, in the Bible too, when you, think, when you talk about this man or these men, it often again has a negative, pejorative kind of nuance to it. What did these men say? He's talking about the Babylonian envoys, isn't he? What did these men, the, the very way in which it's phrased, is expressing Isaiah's disapproval of these men who came. Yep. Uh, Hezekiah knows exactly, uh, Isaiah knows exactly what they said, but he's asking a significant question. And where did they come from? He knows they came from Babylon, but that's the point. Where did they come from? Babylon. <laughs> the very word, you know what I mean? It's supposed to, you know, kind of make you concerned, make you worried. Yeah, they're, they're insinuating kind of questions. So uh, not just fact-finding questions, but Isaiah's questions are already alerting us, and maybe now Hezekiah, who hasn't really been thinking about this very much, that there's an issue here. Where they come from? They come from a far country, says Hezekiah. From Babylon, a far country, and that expression is an echo of chapter 13, verse 5 in Isaiah here, they, it says, They come from a distant land, from the ends of heaven, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole earth. See, the way Babylon has been described earlier in this book, the distant land, the army is going to come from that distant land and it's going to destroy the kingdom of Judah. So all, all this is very ominous in Hezekiah's questions and Hezekiah, uh, Isaiah's questions and Hezekiah's answers. And what did they see? They saw everything. So verse 4 is kind of like a little summary list. Uh, more details in verse 2, but verse 4 here, the last part of the verse, Hezekiah summarises, 
They have seen all that was in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them, as any good host would. These foreign dignitaries, you know, show them around the palace, you know, top to bottom, let them see everything and so forth. This courtesy call, but it's going to be tremendously significant. They saw everything. And Hezekiah is now going to go on and to say, yes, they saw everything and they're going to take everything too. And so in this chapter, it really leads up to these very important words in verses 5 to 7. In a sense, the first four verses in my Bible, the first paragraph, all leads up to this devastating statement by the prophet now. In verses 5 and 6, given this very formal introduction, hear the word of the Lord of hosts, and then verses 5 and 6. So everything before this is really background, build up to this dramatic statement by Isaiah the prophet on official business, and then we have Hezekiah's reaction to this strong word of the prophet in verse 8. Well, how are we to interpret um, Isaiah's words here in verses 6 and 7? Well, let, let's just read them again to remind ourselves. The days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your father stored up until this day, so everything the Babylonians have seen, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Everything they've seen, they're going to take. In verse 7, and some of your own sons who were, who were born to you, shall be taken and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So what's going to happen to the house of Hezekiah? House in terms of possessions, gone. House in terms of family dynasty, likewise, everything is going to go. Now, how, how do we interpret this? Well, doesn't this prove that Hezekiah must have done something wrong? Not really. Look, look closely with me. I, want, I wanted to draw, draw the distinction, and it's an important one, but bef between an announcement of doom, because there's no way you can interpret what Isaiah says is kind of happy kind of stuff, an announcement of doom and an oracle of judgment. It's not exactly the same thing. Certainly verses 6 and 7 is announcing doom and disaster for Hezekiah and his house. But that's not the same as saying that this is a judgment on something that Hezekiah has done. In other words, a, an announced judgment because of a fault. Because almost always in the Bible, when a judgment is pronounced, prophets say something like, because you did this, Therefore, this is going to happen. But there's, there's none of that normal introduction to Hezekiah's words if it is a, a judgment. There's no therefore. There's no because you did this. Certainly we're announcing doom, but there's no preceding accusation by the prophet. Yes, it, yes this announcement of doom is triggered by what Hezekiah has done received the foreign visitors, showed them everything, 
now this pronouncement of doom, it's triggered by his actions, but that's not exactly the same. I think it's a very important distinction. You know, whether we view Hezekiah as godly or not, it, it rides on this distinction. But an announcement of doom is not exactly the same as an oracle of judgment. After all, we've got the previous chapter, chapter 38. Chapter 38, when Hezek as, as we read before, 38 verse uh, 1, where, Hezekiah, where Isaiah comes along and says to Hezekiah, set your house in order, for you will die, you will not recover. Hezekiah comes along unannounced and says, you're going to die. But indeed, there's nothing in that chapter. So uh, another announcement of doom. Another disaster is announced. But again, there's nothing there which says or implies that it's because of some fault in Hezekiah. In fact, Hezekiah can go on and immediately pray. Verse 3, remember, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with my whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. You know, this death sentence, you know, make sure you've got your will filled out. You're not going to be with us very much longer. An announcement of doom, but that's not the same as an oracle of judgment. I'm saying the same thing's happening here in chapter 39 as well. Yeah, but then, uh, as, and it, but it's really verse 8, isn't it, that people have problems with. In fact, not even the whole of verse 8. If we only had the first half of verse 8, I think everyone would agree that Hezekiah is godly. What does Hezekiah say? He Hezekiah has heard this withering announcement of disaster, all right? All your possessions, all the royal possessions, the royal family, carried off into exile, taken off to Babylon. What's Hezekiah's reaction? Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. Godly Hezekiah accepts this word of disaster. It must be good, certainly not pleasant. It's hard to see how it could be good for Hezekiah and his house, but godly Hezekiah responds with, acceptance the word is good it must be good because God always knows best you see so if we only had the beginning of verse 8 we'd all agree what an amazing man what an amazing reaction a bit like Job isn't it the Lord gives the Lord has taken away blessed be the name of the Lord God's taken you know all his possessions God's taken all his children the godly acceptance of Job this statement by Hezekiah is very similar, isn't it? The word of the Lord, this terrible word of disaster, predicting the end of his house, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. So if that's all we had, we'd all agree, but the, is, the problem is he goes on, doesn't he? We have the second half of the verse. What are we to make of this? In my version, it says, For he thought there will be peace and security in my day. Now, we've got to think about this. We've got to look closely. Are, are we allowed to look closely at the Bible? Every now and again, you have to look extra closely, don't you? Close reading, close reading, yeah, close reading. And Roy and I, I were talking earlier you know, about 
Isn't it amazing, after all these years, we're still reading the Bible and discovering new stuff and so much depth. That, so sometimes you have to look a bit closely. Well, can I suggest we need to look a bit closely. Now, now part of the problem is our, our, our Bible translation sometimes may not be totally helpful. What does my version says? That there, there will be peace and security uh, in my day. Uh, is that what Hezekiah means? Well, who cares about the future? As long as I'm all right. As long as it happens after I die, who cares? Now, that's often how this half verse has been interpreted, isn't it? So, I've got down there a little bit of French, isn't it? Après moi le déluge. After me the flood. A very famous comment was at Madame de Pompadour, the, the mistress of Louis XIV, the King of France. And the decadent lifestyle of the French court, Louis XIV, what happens, you know, what does it matter after I die? After me, the flood. You know, let the flood come, who cares, you know what I mean? As long as things are right in my day. Now, very often, that's how Hezekiah's statement has been interpreted. Disaster for the house of Hezekiah, but, but he thought there'll be peace and security in my day. Now, if that's what Hezekiah did mean, we would have to say that's very disappointing. That's a very disappointing attitude because we should be concerned, shouldn't we, about what happens after. In church life, you know what I mean? We seek to be faithful now, don't we? We're not just thinking in church life of now and our generation, but what about the generation to come? You know what I mean? That's, that's a godly attitude, isn't it? What about those who will follow? Um, but is Hezekiah saying, who cares about what happens after I die? As long as there's peace and security, you know, as long as none of this disaster happens when I'm around, uh, who cares? Now, that's often how it's interpreted, but I think that's most unfortunate because I don't at all believe that Hezekiah is thinking that way. Now, part of the problem is the three key words in verse 8... The word good and the word peace and the word that we translate here as security. Is that what your version says? That's typically how that's translated. Well, we've already seen that when Hezekiah says this word is good, it's a, a, maybe a non-obvious use of the word good because how can it be good? It's certainly not beneficial or pleasant it's not good in a whole lot of senses of the word good, but it is good in a certain sense. It must be good if this is God's will and purpose. So it's expressing acceptance, isn't it? This word which is good and has terrible consequences for Hezekiah's house, but Hezekiah trusts that in the good purposes of God, God must have some higher purpose in mind in allowing this to happen. The word that you have spoken is good, well, maybe we need to look more carefully at that word peace. And I think we need to. There, there will be peace. Again, can I suggest it has a non-obvious meaning, this word peace. Uh, back in chapter 38, the previous chapter, verse 17, this life-threatening illness, what does Hezekiah say, beginning of verse 17? It was for my welfare. It's actually the same word, peace. This life-threatening illness, this terrible personal crisis in Hezekiah's life, 
it was for my peace. In other words, he could see that it was finally for his welfare. God blessed him through this gruelling experience of life-threatening illness. It was for my peace. So maybe when he's talking about peace here, he's not just talking about peace and security and, you know, everything being nice and easy in my days. Maybe that's not at all what Hezekiah means. And also the word translated faithfulness, uh, sorry, uh, security is much better translated by faithfulness, even though none of the English versions do that. And in fact, it's talking about God's faithfulness. There will be peace and he will enjoy God's faithfulness uh, in his days. Uh, this is exactly the same word, even though the word here is security, it's exactly the same word in the Hebrew text as at the end of chapter 38, verse 19, uh, it says, where a father makes known to his children your faithfulness, God's faithfulness. Also at the end of uh, verse 18, those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. In other words, Hezekiah has already just used this word in a prayer to God, expressing his trust in God's faithfulness. Well, I, I want to argue that that's what Hezekiah is talking about here. What comforts Hezekiah? How can he accept this dreadful news? In effect, the collapse of the royal house of Judah, the end of the line of David, all the treasure built up by the kings of uh, the Davidic kings taken off to Babylon. The, the line of David, the royal line, taken off to Babylon to become eunuchs. You know, the, the, the perpetuation of the Davidic line is being threatened. How, how can Hezekiah cope with that? How can he accept that? Well, what is his hope and comfort, godly Hezekiah, is the peace and the faithfulness of God that he believes, that he trusts, he will continue to experience. Now, this is godliness. In fact, this is the language of the book of Psalms, which celebrates the faithfulness of God. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all, all the days of my life and so forth. We could find uh, passages in the book of Psalms which echo this kind of godly sentiment. So even though this, these verses are, are, this verse particularly is routinely used to find fault with Hezekiah, when we read it in its context, chapter 38, the earlier crisis, the health crisis, in that he, he discovered the goodness of God, he saw that it was for his peace and for his welfare, he saw that the important thing was God's faithfulness. That's what he was depending on. That's what he wanted to celebrate. The whole context suggests uh, a very different reading, a very different understanding of what Hezekiah is, is doing here. So the, the royal house of Judah looks like it is coming to an end. The Davidic kings, they're not going to be around from now on, it appears. But Hezekiah can accept that. Why? Because, well, what, what really matters? Hezekiah here is telling us what really matters. It's not so much Hezekiah's 
kingship, but the higher kingship of God. What finally matters is not the kingdom of Judah, but God's universal kingship. We're coming back to what we saw at the end of chapter 24. What's our great hope? What is the future? It's the universal rule and reign of God as king from Zion, his world capital. In, in other words, far, far from Hezekiah being ungodly here, Hezekiah is telling us the theology that really matters. And when you're hearing it from Hezekiah, it is much more powerful, a much more powerful message than it would be otherwise. Because uh, after all, it, it, it's the Davidic king who, who looks like losing his kingdom, who says the kingdom that matters, the only kingdom really that ever did matter, is God's kingdom and his rule. So I would say this is a, a tremendously important and impressive statement. Rather than Hezekiah doing or saying the wrong thing here, he's summarising us summarising for us again what this whole great book of Isaiah is on about, the universal reign and rule of God. Certainly Isaiah coming along this, this terrible announcement of disaster, it's kind of interrupted Hezekiah's personal plans. I didn't expect this to happen. But it, it's done nothing. It hasn't affected, it hasn't interrupted the plan and purpose of God. Isaiah's big picture the coming universal rule and reign of God. So I want to suggest that perhaps this is an example where we have misjudged someone's motives and actions. Hezekiah, who's obviously godly in chapters 36 and 39 when the city of Jerusalem is being threatened, obviously godly, Hezekiah's obviously godly response to this announcement of his forthcoming death, obviously godly. And uh, so I, I, I'm suggesting, I'm arguing that that's exactly what's happening here. And, and of course, this it, chapter 39 comes at a very important juncture within the book of Isaiah. Because from chapter 40 onwards, there's now going to be a very, very strong focus on the majesty and the greatness of God as king and ruler of the nations and uh, uh, other so-called gods are nothing in comparison with the true God and so forth. So chapters 40 and following are, are, are going to have a, a, a very high, and exalted theology of who God is. That's all anticipated, you see. In a sense, it's all announced here at the end of chapter 39, with Hezekiah who reminds himself and reminds us of the things that really matter. Uh, I, I suppose we, we've got to be told every now and again, hey, Greg, it's not about you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or whoever you might be. You know what I mean? It's not about you. Um, it's about God, isn't it? His purposes often greater and deeper and wiser and more mysterious than our plans and purposes. It's not about us, and that's what Hezekiah is saying. It's not about 
me and my family. It's not about my kingdom, it's about the kingdom of God. Seek first his kingdom. So that's what I'm suggesting is on display. So Hezekiah is still one of my heroes, as you can see. I, I, I don't think, you know, this is not kind of in a, in a bad hair day by Hezekiah, you know what I mean, that, you know, as I would have thought better of Hezekiah, you know, comes to this. No, that, that, no I'm saying the opposite. Uh, here's Hezekiah again telling us uh, the things that really matter. Let's have, let's have a prayer. Father God, we thank you for the example of uh, godly men and women in the Bible. Thank you for the reminder here that it's, it's not about us. Father, so often we confuse our prosperity, our well-being, things going well in our lives with your eternal plan and purpose. When there's a crisis in our life, when there's some difficulty, when there's a cross to carry or some burden that we have to shoulder, um, Lord, we're tempted to think that the whole world's caving in, but it's not. Thank you that nothing can interrupt your plan and purposes. Thank you that your kingdom will dawn in all its fullness. Your rule over this world and the whole creation one day will be open, obvious, public and unrivaled. So we thank you for this hope and prospect of the coming kingdom of God. Thank you that that's what's announced here. Help us to make the same godly response of Isaiah when difficulties intrude into our lives. And we pray all this through Jesus. Amen.